design really comes first to me, period. Then all the other inspirations and things, it's really about the silhouette and the woman who's wearing it and where she's going and what she needs that outfit for. And then the inspiration just comes to be the layer of the, the decoration that goes on the body. Today, I'll be interviewing our special guest, Mimi Plange. Mimi is a ready-to-wear luxury designer based in New York City. Her work has been featured on the pages of Vogue, Vogue UK, Ebony, Harper's Bazaar, The New York Times, and Women's Wear Daily, just to name a few. Her pieces have also been worn by the likes of Serena Williams, Rihanna, and our forever First Lady Michelle Obama. Born in Ghana and raised in the U.S., Mimi's designs are inspired by both modern American luxury sportswear and a modern perspective on the rich and limitless cultures throughout Africa. With nearly two decades of experience in the fashion industry beyond her own brand, Mimi has a wealth of knowledge to share with our listeners today. So, without further ado, I'd like to welcome Mimi Plange to Black in Fashion. Thank you so much for speaking with me today, Mimi. Thank you, CJ. I'm so happy to get a chance to speak with you today. Tell me, when did you first know you wanted to work in fashion? I really wanted to be a fashion designer ever since I was a little girl. It wasn't really something that, you know, later on kind of I fell into or anything like that. It was, for me, it was something that was very planned. It was something that, like, around 12 years old, I mean, my family growing up in my world, my mom loved fashion, all my sisters were into clothes, like, my family was already into that and into the arts and into things like that. And I had the benefit of growing up around people who were, you know, either artists or somehow related in the creative industry, people around me who were able to touch me. And so I had a lot of influence from the time that I was young. I was watching like a lot of period movies, you know, I was into like Amadeus and all right. this like really like Victorian type of fashion and I was watching shows and I was watching MTV's fashion. What was that show called? I don't even remember what the show's called. I'm totally blanking out on it. But um, you're fine. but they oh it was a fashion show that used to come on MTV and and I used to love that and I'd watch it with my mom and my mom really loved like old films and so it was just something that was already there and I had decided like I was gonna become a fashion designer. Like uh, was that it was House it. of Style? Yes, House of Style. Yes. That's exactly what it was. <laughs> Yeah. Have you ever seen Crimson Peak? No. Okay. I don't know if you're into horror movies or suspense. I don't really know how to classify it. But the costuming in that movie is absolutely everything. It was in theaters briefly. But if you Google Crimson Peak, you can just see like some of it. I highly recommend watching that movie. It's one of the first things I thought about when you said period films. It's not really a period film. But Uh uh, you just have to see the costuming in that movie. I guarantee you'll love it. I just wrote it down, and I'm definitely going to check it out. (laughs) All right, so tell me, how did, well, you know, we had a little background on your beginnings as a designer, but from your perspective, how did the Mimi Plunge brand come to be? Well, of course, like, fast-forwarding through everything, like, when I was young, it was just kind of like a plan that I had. I was, like, researching a lot of designers. I was reading all the magazines. I was, you know, obsessing and fantasizing. And when I kind of, like, made the choice and presented it to my mom at that time, she didn't really think that it was like that viable of a business to get into. Like to her, it was like something that was like fluff, you know, like it's like, Mm -hmm. you know, being an actor and actress is not something to really take seriously. And so, you know, upon my research and things like that, I came across Gianfranco Ferre and I had discovered that he had been 
an architect before he was a fashion designer. And I also had a family friend who's pretty much like an uncle to me who was also an architect and he was also a watercolor artist. And he had also had a good influence on my life. And I felt like if I couldn't do fashion, I would do architecture. So I went to UC Berkeley first and I got my degree in architecture and dramatic art was my minor. And then after that, I went to fashion school in San Francisco at FIDM. And right after graduation, about three months later, I had maybe $400 in my pocket and I moved to New York and I didn't know anybody there. And I just decided it was just what I needed to do. And so I moved to New York. I just started walking around the garment district and giving people my resume. I just, I thought I was, you know, talented. I thought I could probably get a job at like a high-end brand. That's really what my dream was to work at like a Dior or or to work for Tom Ford or like it was very grandiose at that time. Right. And I didn't think that there was any reason why I wouldn't be able to work in one of those places. So I was just like really believing in myself and just really walking around in things. And for about three weeks, I was doing that and sending my resume and I just didn't really get any feedback or callbacks or anything like that. And I didn't have a headhunter or anything like that. So I just decided, let me go through the paper and really start looking at, you know, who's hiring and what's going on and this and that. And I ended up getting my first job as a merchandiser at a jewelry company, which wasn't really that exciting for me because I didn't want to be a merchandiser and I definitely wanted to be a fashion designer. But that was really my first step into the fashion world. And so after working there for some time and then hopping around to, I worked for the Avenue. I was an assistant designer for Rockaway Men's brand. I grew from there to be a head designer. And then I was eventually the creative director for the women's division. And then I also worked on Beyonce's brand for her Darion collection, which was her lower price point brand that sold at Macy's. Mm-hmm. And I was the VP of design there for five years. And also at that company, I was able to grow and also spearhead a lot of other brands as well, including Rockwear Women's again. And so after my five-year run as VP of Design, where I got to travel and go to factories and learn so much more about the business of what, you know, fashion really is and what selling really is and what commercialism is versus, you know, having the excitement and the editorial pieces, I decided to launch my brand along with my business partner, who's also my husband. We just decided that, you know, we would do it. And at first we had a collection called Boudoir Duit, which came out in around 2007 time 2008. But the name was difficult to say. We would notice that when people (laughs) were on the red carpet, it was just difficult for them. And that was about a collection that we first started with just outerwear and kind of like sexy lingerie pieces, which Mm -hmm. um, translated to like bed of oysters, which was, you know, this grandiose thing. And then, you know, we decided later on after reviewing the collection with a lot of different people and after us just thinking about what it was that we wanted and after meeting Andre Leon Talley as well, And he was like, why don't you just call it your name? Your name is so fabulous, you know? (laughs) And it was interesting because, you know, a lot of, you know, fashion law people will always tell you, don't really name your collection after you because your brand is something that eventually one day, you know, people may buy into or you may sell or things like that. And the thing that a lot of designers have lost in the interim of being a fashion designer is their name. But we decided we would jump, you know, just jump into it and, and take the chance and we ended up naming it Mimi Plonge. And in 2010, we officially launched as Mimi Plonge. And that brought us to where we are today. 
I love the name Mimi Plange personally. I, I think it's like, I don't know, like, yeah, it is easy to say, but it's it stands out. You know, it's not like generic fashion brand. It's like Mimi Plunge. Like if you hear Mimi Plunge, you know what Mimi Plunge is. <laughs> Thank you. But yeah, when you said that, one of the first things I thought about was sort of like Christian Lacroix and sort of the direction things turn with that brand and even that name and all the craziness with licensing. But I think it's mm-hmm. really cool that you did sort of take that leap of faith and said, you know what, we're, we're going to go ahead and name this Mimi Plunge. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's like there's always going to be the risk that you're taking. I mean, business itself is a risk, but... Also, through the course, I mean, we've been self-funded the entire time. We built our business on our own. So it's a totally, we own this brand, you know, and every choice that we make will be, you know, will stand in that, you know, and mm-hmm. those are the decisions that you make if you choose to sell it. You know, I also have many other names. Just being from a Ghanaian heritage, I have, you know, my name is April because I was born on Friday. I don't feel like I'm giving anything away. It's right. just a brand that I'm creating that I hope one day when I'm not here anymore, there will be other people also working on it. So that's not what I'm really attached or stuck to. Right. And it also seems really cool that you got a lot of your um, experience to sort of get to where you are. You gained a lot of it through, I guess, starting off sort of in retail, but then growing, developing and learning a lot of skills that you may not have acquired otherwise. I thought that was really cool as well. Yeah. I mean, it's like, The fashion industry is composed of so many things and you're not going to just get there just by being like, I think, just a designer, especially in this day and age. Like you have to have like a very broad perspective of the different voices and the different people that are involved to make fashion work. Like I think like, you know, you're going to be working with the stores, you're going to be working with the buyers, you're going to be working with the merchandisers. It's really a team effort when it gets to a certain level. So I think that all the experience you can get will be great. But of course, there's brands who there's people who've launched brands and they're 23, 24. And right out the bat, sometimes it blossoms into something very quickly. I think that's you know not the norm, but it is possible. So it just all depends on a lot of different things. So in an interview with The New York Times, you said that you wanted to prove that people to people that African fashion can't be pigeonholed and that you can compete globally. So could you expound a little bit about what you meant with that statement? I don't really think it's something that can be defined as of now, as of today, as a specific thing. And I also don't consider my fashion that I do to be African fashion Um, because I live here in America. I grew up in America and I can only tell my story. You know, I can only be true to myself of what it is, even though I was born in Ghana, I came here when I was five. And so I feel like my brand really straddles the worlds of like, you know, it straddles two worlds. I'm highly, you know, inspired by where I come from and my past and my family, but I also live here. So there's also this dynamic of it being, you know, not specific and it's not totally American and it's not totally African. I feel like that's just my diverse world of just me being who I am and straddling in between two worlds. As most people who are from a diaspora, I think they often feel that kind of connection and pull into both ways of which they're raised. But I do think that in general, when I first began and my inspiration, what it means to me was when I used to look at magazines and I would see other designers, you know, being inspired by Africa. And I'm talking about people like whether it's like a Louis Vuitton or it was Yves Saint Laurent or all these people that were taking inspiration from Africa. It always seemed to be very centered in on a Maasai type of look or Mm -hmm. a print fabric type of look or Moroccan type of look. And it really like just 
stayed within that realm, like, you know, that's what it was. And it was considered, you know, African fashion. And that always bothered me because I always felt like Africa is a history that there's so much that we don't even know about what's going on. You know, I mean, it's between West and North and South and East. There's like so much difference, you know, and between just one country, there's so many languages within one country. And there's so many things that are going on that I just feel like there there was so much more there. And so for me, it was about taking things that we stereotypically find and kind of like, you know, taking them all apart and kind of disrupting what we feel is typically African. And so a lot of times when I first started showing my work, a lot of people felt like, you know, that's not even African at all. And I was like, well, what is African? You know, like, can you explain to me exactly what is African besides the stereotypical feel of of what it is that you see? It's like a double-edged sword. It's one hand you want to you want to say that, you know, you're open to like this newness and new designs and all these things, but then you're stuck in it looking a certain way and that's not going to work. And so what I was trying to introduce was at the end of the day, I'm gonna, I make silhouettes that are really much more so into, you know, Western silhouettes because that's of today and that's of right now. And that's the world that we're living in. This is the world that I'm in, but the inspiration is coming from there, but I want people to, from all around the globe to be able to accept it and not accept it as that first, but as this awesome design first. And then the story behind it is like, oh, well, it was inspired by Africa. But that doesn't have to be the main thing because design really comes first to me, you know, period. Then all the other inspirations and things, it's really about the silhouette and how, you know, the woman who's wearing it and where she's going and what she needs that outfit for. And then the inspiration just comes to be the layer of the, the decoration that goes on the body. So that's kind of how I'm looking at it. So it was really just to disassemble the way that we often look at, you know, what is African and what is not, and just change that narrative and be open to, you know, maybe not what you always thought was African design is, it it can be more, you know, that's basically what I was saying. I love that. And everything you said was very true. It's like the continent of Africa has so rich in culture and history, whether you're looking at East Africa, North, South, like there's so much. And so the industry, a lot of people, well, I'll say a lot of people in the industry do sort of like to put it in a sort of box, you know, like everything you Mm -hmm. just described. And so you being able to really take that perspective, but sort of, I guess, sort of like reteach everyone else where it's like, look, these are my designs this is what I do. Sure, this is some of the background, but this is really a global perspective we're tackling here versus just, oh, I use prints here, so I am an African designer, you know? Right. So I think all that's really, really cool. So I know on your website, it said that you're really guided by the democratization of luxury. And I don't know if that's sort of what you just explained just now, but could you sort of explain what you mean by the democratization of luxury? Yes. I mean, that was something that when we first started using that term, it definitely wasn't, nobody was really talking that much about democratizing luxury. You know, that's really become something that's been, you know, said and embraced right now. But when we came into it, our perspective was we were initially building a luxury house. Now I don't think that term really matters that much. But initially when I first started, you know, that was what we were you know, wanted to create. And in the sense of not just making pretentious clothing, 
But it was just in the sense that we wanted a new perspective to show the beauty of, you know, of these two worlds colliding, an African world. And I'm saying Africa in general because I don't use any one specific place in Africa. I use all the entire continent. And so using that just opposed to this American culture of like ready to wear and things that you can grab and go to a meeting and things that you want to wear when you want to chill on the weekend and all those things and kind of mixing that together you know, it was just that we could tell that story. We could tell that story and it could be refined and we would use the best fabrics and we would use the best techniques and it would be held to the utmost quality. And so that was what the initial goal of making it a luxurious brand, because I came from the streetwear world. And if I wanted to, I could easily make a streetwear brand because that's really where I came from. But Mm -hmm. It was just this idea of not being pigeonholed into what the expectations are and to understand that I'm not the type of designer who I feel like I can only do one thing. I feel like if somebody comes to me and presents an idea to me and they're like, we need you to design into this. It needs to be like this. This is what the price point is going to be. These are the fabrics that are going to be. I feel like I can design into that because I'm that type of designer. And I just felt like when we came into this world, it was more so like this sense of class where it was like only these type of people make luxury goods. Right. Or we're only going to accept these kind of people to make luxury goods. And can somebody who doesn't, who wasn't really born with like a silver spoon in their mouth, can they create luxury? Is it something that you can purchase from them? Is it something that, you know, they can speak to you on? And it was really like this thing of being shut off because you don't come from this world. So you can't create this thing. And it's not like it's like in the art world where an artist, you know, I think they have the same kind of problems as like a designer does Mm -hmm. in that sense of coming from a different social class and creating something that is going to be worth millions of dollars later on. I think it's very hard for that class to accept that you yourself, because you didn't grow up in that kind of environment, that you're able to create something that they would want. And so the democratizing of it was just to show that anybody can create luxury. That's not it doesn't that's not what determines because you were born rich or you come from a certain society that you're the only one who could make these goods that look this way. That's something that anybody with a talent and design aesthetic and can, you know, is really good at their craft, they can do that too. And so it was just kind of like trying to break down that barrier. That's what it was for us, you know, what it means to be able to create luxury goods. It doesn't have to come from a certain place that's like steeped in classism. You know, that's just so that you can keep it to yourself and you don't want anyone else to come in and make any money off of it or do all the, you know, Mm -hmm. create from it and all these other things. But that's a lie and it's not true. So that's not what, to me, that's just not what the formula is. But I think that that's the formula that's tossed into people's faces a lot of times. Like, well, you need to design into your lifestyle. And I think although that I've learned more so that that's true, you do, but I think that it's also okay to be the type of designer like someone who I feel like maybe like a John Galliano is, who's designing really like dreams, you know, like you're designing what's in your mind. And when some people that, you know, may not have grown up in that environment, they can design that way too. It can be like, you may not be of that society, but maybe what's in your head and what your work is, is that. So that's really, you know, what it came down to. You've had the pleasure of dressing some huge names from Michelle Obama to Rihanna, Janelle Monae, and even Paris Hilton. So what are those moments like for you? Like, what is it like to see something you designed on someone like Michelle Obama? Well, it's amazing. I mean, it's, it definitely makes you feel good because 
obviously these are the women in society who are, you know, the most recognized for, you know, the awesomeness that they bring to the world. And they're taking themselves and allowing themselves to share that in an essence with you and put it on a platform that's in front of the world. And so it's amazing to be able to have those opportunities. I don't think it's something that like we actually sought out or we're looking for those things. Mm -hmm. And so even more so, it was a blessing that happened to us because it made us feel like, you know, in a sense, validated that our work could span between a lot of different types of women, which was something that we always wanted. And that, you know, people respected the craftsmanship and the work that we were putting into our design. So I think in a lot of ways it makes you feel good. I think it feels even more awesome when you see just a woman on the street wearing your work as well, because Mm -hmm. that's a woman who, you know, went to the store or went online and purchased something from you. And that feels awesome, too. You know, so I think it's just about your work getting that platform and your work being validated and the respect. But I also think that if those things don't happen to you, it doesn't mean that your work is not valid. Right. So what do you remember that very first moment where you saw, I guess, a celebrity in something that you designed? I believe the first person who ever wore something from us was Rihanna. And it made me really happy because I always like I liked her already. And Mm -hmm. I thought that she was someone who was you know, willing to take chances with fashion. And I felt like she was always really true to herself. And I felt like that was the girl, that was the woman that I wanted to dress, you know? So for me, it was like that connection because I felt like, you know, and the way it happened was so organic. It was one of our dresses at the time was like in a boutique in Beverly Hills and her stylist just happened to find it. And so it wasn't like we had to go and do anything. And like these type of things don't always just like happen, you know, like it was just, it happened so organic and it was rich and it just really was like, okay, what we're doing is speaking to the type of women that we wanted to speak to. And that's perfect. Like of all people, Rihanna, I don't know what I would do if I, first, if I was a designer, but if I was a designer (laughs) and Rihanna actually wore something of mine, it's like, she's huge in fashion right now. Like she's been sort of on the come up for a while, but Mm -hmm. that's saying something, especially if like Rihanna can rock it, then. And this was years ago, like years ago. So this was before the Rihanna of today, but even Uh then that was when her transformation was like, you know, coming together. And I think she was always standing on her own. I think the reason why all her fashion ventures have been so successful is because she stays true to herself and she really loves her own product. She wears it, she supports it. And I think that that's why it's been amazing. So in working in fashion, um, a lot of us know fashion can be a very, very difficult industry to break into from it being very exclusive to elitist to some. So do you feel or how do you feel that your identity as a black woman in America, of Guyanian descent, how do you feel that that has impacted your career, if at all? Being in America, I mean, everything just kind of centers around race, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And for me, the way that I see it is it's, it can be a huge distraction. And I think that if you come into a business with the issues of societies, like race issues already, I think you're already bringing yourself in from like a lower place, Mm -hmm. in my opinion. And I just feel like you have to really like see beyond that because it's not like it's impossible because we do know that there are successful Black people in every single industry and in difficult industries to get into and break into as well. So 
we know that it's not impossible, but yes, perhaps it could be more difficult. And I just felt like I try not to focus on that, but yes, it comes up. It's like, it's something that I think you have to be aware of it, but it cannot drive you and it cannot be the basis that you use to make decisions. Because if you feel like, you know, they don't like you or it's going to be like this or that, like, it'll probably be that way. That's Mm. how important to me, your sense of where your mind is at controls the outcome of your experience in this industry. And for me, it's like, despite everything that's going on, it's like, I can think about it for two seconds and then it's like, I got to move on. You know, I got to get to where I'm going because nobody's going to stop me from getting to where I'm going. It may be more difficult. I may have to go around the corner. I may have to go around you to the bottom, you know, through the bottom or the side, but I'm getting where I'm going. And I'm definitely not going to get let what anybody else's outside perception of me stop me from getting to where I'm going, because then that's my fault. Nobody's going to have that much control over me because some of it is just a lot of talking and a lot of distraction. Right. And to me, what the real core issue of the fashion industry is, is not simply a race issue, even though that's there. But I feel like it gets covered up by, oh, let me put a celebrity into this position. And that's okay because that's an easy thing to do. I mean, who doesn't want to be around a celebrity that's amazing and all that stuff? But when you really start, you know, championing some people who are not celebrities, then I can say, okay, well, now there's something being done. But when it's just like a celebrity getting put into a position, that to me is like meaningless. It doesn't mean anything, you know? And I'm not talking about the ones who, of course, deserve and have worked really hard to get there. I mean, that's something different. But I'm just talking about the people who are trying to fix the problem by, by doing something like that. But what I will say is that the problem is deeper than just the fashion industry. And that's why I feel like a lot of these conversations, they're not real enough to make impact because... The issue is classism more than anything in the industry. It's classism. Like a lot of poor girls, despite if you're Latino or white or black, probably can't get into the industry Mm -hmm. because this is an industry where if you're a designer, you have to have a lot of money to keep making those collections. And no one's going to come and save you and no one's going to come and help you. Like, you know, we're in America. This is a cutthroat, you know, society and industry and everyone's trying to do what they're trying to do. No one's handing out any kind of charity thing. So, You know, when you can't make your next collection or you don't have money to produce that stuff, no one's going to, you know, really kind of stick their neck out there and help you, you know, unless you do know these investors or you do know someone, an angel investor, you know, that can maybe come and help you along the way. And those are hard to find for anybody. Mm -hmm. So it's already a competitive industry within itself. And so that's already there. And I think the classism just like takes it up a notch because in America, The population of black people, I don't think it's more than 13 percent in actuality in the whole entire country. So when you think about that and you think about the people who actually are getting into fashion and and the poverty rate between African-Americans and white people, you can kind of see how it may be difficult just as a whole to be able to infiltrate because there's not that wealth in the community. And that's really where this problem is really stemming from the lack of wealth in our communities, you know, to really grow properly and and things like that. And and the fashion industry is not going to fix that. Mm -mm. You know, (laughs) what is going to fix that is education, is having more access to things at a younger age, you know, as you grow and being able to develop and be able to come into the world and be able to compete. Because I've had interns where 
you know, sometimes like in the past, I've had interns that, you know, Caucasian interns would come to me and be like, you know, I want to work for you. I'll work I'll intern. You don't even have to pay me. It's fine. You know, and then it's like, then I need the help or whatever it is. And they can get that experience and they can move on. But I know that when I first moved to New York, I definitely could not work for someone for free. Oh, same. I couldn't, (laughs) you know, because where was I going to, how was I going to live? I was barely able to even pay the rent that I was, you know, paying. And I was babysitting and I had all these odd jobs and things I was doing. And so, like, those are the things that have to be taken into consideration. And that starts early, you know, not at the back end when you're trying to start a brand and now you're trying to figure out all those things. The experience and all those things and all the things that come from it, it has to be, it's a societal shift that needs to really happen. And the people at the top are what needs to change. I think a lot of times we think about putting models in the forefront. You know, that's all great. Representation does matter, but it's not everything. You know, that beauty that you find in yourself, that needs to start from childhood. That needs to start in the home. You know, like you can't expect outside people who really don't care about you to make you feel beautiful. Those things have to come from, you know, an early age, in my opinion. And I just feel that until those things, the real issues are addressed and until like, you know, we talk about diversity, understanding Mm -hmm. that diversity is not just a black and white thing, but it's also diversity in thought process. Mm -hmm. Like, it's not going to be diverse if everybody who's still doing everything feels the same way about everything and works the same. You know, that's not really going to be diverse. It has to be people who've had different experiences and who've had different types of lives and who look at things from different types of perspectives. Those people have to be at the top. And those are the people who have to make decisions in order for things to really, really change. Or we're just talking about things and just throwing Band-Aids on things. And that's never going to work. Right. I actually read a really like similar article about something like that. It was talking about like diversity versus inclusivity. And it's like the diversity is like, let's put an image of what seems to be diverse here. Let's try to make this work without actually including those people in the actual decisions like you were saying. So it's like, let's get diverse perspectives, making decisions. Let's That's like inclusivity is when you actually are including those diverse perspectives versus just sort of putting them here, putting them there. So let's actually, let's actually get their buy-in. Let's actually make a collective effort to see what we need to really push for an inclusivity. So I 100% get that perspective. The other thing is not just putting people there just to put them there, okay? Right. Like the same determination and the, and the effort that you take into hiring all types of people that work in your organization, that's not just, oh my gosh, I need somebody here, so let me just call my friend who knows somebody and let me put them in here. Like that same vigorous work to find the best of the best the best has to also be in place, too, for that to work properly. Right. So I guess in developing your brand, what were some obstacles that you did face, like between you you and your husband trying to build this brand or just trying to get the right partnerships in place? What were some obstacles that you faced? I would say in the beginning, some of the main ones were just people not really understanding what we were doing. You know, it just seemed like, when they would look at the collection, I mean, we actually had people like buyers come to the showroom and then it would be us in the showroom and they were like, where's the designer? <laughs> so it'd be like, uh, it's us. Hi. And they would really be shocked by what we were designing and what we looked like. 
you know, and things like that. So I think that just being able to tell our story and like sticking to it, even though it was like, you know, lonely sometimes and Mm -hmm. like, you know, rough and out there, but sticking to that vision of wanting to do this thing that is to the utmost highest level at all times and not breaking down for anyone. You know, I would say that that was really the most difficult part and just really trying being able to be in the place and tell your story and being able to get access to funding, which is probably the most difficult part of it all. And now that I'm a little older, I do understand the dynamics and and what and why somebody would fund a brand versus another brand. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of it is like, you know, instead of thinking that the road is okay, you're going to be in vogue and you're going to do this and all of a sudden you're going to blow up and then, you know, you're going to get an investor and everyone's going to, you know, love you forever and ever. I think that that may work for some people who already have a strong footing in the industry or already well known in the industry. But I think when you're very new and you don't know anybody and you don't have any friends in the industry or things like that, I think you have to cultivate your brand yourself. You have to, you know, create, so you have to generate the buzz And it doesn't matter, like, yes, of course, if you get magazine hits and, you know, celebrities wear it and all these things, you still have to generate it because the industry is full of people who are trying to do the work, good work, but at the same time trying to help their friends and also being very Mm cliquish. And also, like, so there's all these things going on that, like, when you're not in that part of that, you'll just be kind of shunned out because, and not because even they're being malicious or anything, it's just that, it's a small space that a lot of people want to be in. And there's already people like on the waiting list before you get there. Right. So, you know, that's really been probably probably the biggest challenge is trying to make our voice on our own, you know, while funding it all on your own and just kind of trying to create this business, you know, without much financial help or the true, true support, you know, that really comes from within the industry. Right. So I guess I'm sort of wrapping it up. So what sort of advice would you give to any upcoming young designers who want to break into the industry, but they're not sure where to start? I would say do a lot of research, you know, don't be caught up by the fabulousness of being a designer. I think that there's also a lot of other roads that you can take. There's a lot of other amazing positions that are just not the designer. I think pattern making, I think like not even just being a buyer, but, you know, just being in quality control, just like just different types of parts of the business that you can be in and it doesn't have to be design. I think just to consider that, but of course, to design what's in your heart, then go for it and understand that like this is an industry that is going to push your buttons about who you are and what you believe and your strength. And you really have to believe in yourself and nobody's going to give you that. Like that has to come from you. Like you really have to believe in yourself and what you're doing. And everybody says it, but it's not as easy to do as you would think, especially in this world of social media and all these things where everybody is influencing people's train of thought all the time. You know, it's not easy to stick it within your own thing as much as you would think it is. And to try to get some experience too. You know, like I know sometimes like some stories, it seems like people just like blew up overnight or this and that. But a lot of people work hard for a lot, a lot of years. Mm -hmm. And it takes a lot longer to build a brand than you could have ever imagined when you're doing it on your own. You know, and it takes years, years, you know, because think about it. People who really want people who buy into brands are always looking for the heritage. How long has it been around? You know, who's worn Mm -hmm. it? All those things. So you have to build that before people will come to you, 
you know, for that. And you always have to think about your customer and yourself and who you're trying to represent. Like, and think about this really dearly before, you know, you start your social media accounts and this and that. Like, if you're building a brand and then somebody goes to your page and everything looks very personal and everything looks very, you know, um, not about the brand that you're building, you know, try to think about what does the customer who you want to purchase your clothing or items, what do they want to see when they come here? You know, think about it as a business all the time and understand that nobody really cares like about the fact that maybe you may not have as much as the other person starting out. That doesn't mean anything in the business world, you know, like you still have to be just as good you still have to compete. And if you want to compete, you have to present yourself that way and not, you know, be like, well, I don't have this and I don't have that. So, of course, it's not going to look good as this. Those are excuses that, you know, unfortunately, I just think that no one really cares about within this industry. So you have if you say you want to compete with the world then do it on your own terms and find your way, because every way that has been built there are still other roads that you can take. You don't have to follow anybody else's path. You can just follow your own. And I would say that's probably, you know, the big gist of it. Powerful words. I love it. (laughs) All right, Mimi. So I think that's pretty much going to wrap up everything. Before we head out, are there any other party words you would like to give to our audience today? Just, you know, thank everyone out there for, I feel like the awesome support that, you know, we've gotten throughout our career. And I feel like, you know, you can't do fashion by yourself, like in a hole in the ground. So it feels so good that people have responded and, you know, been so supportive of our work. And we just really, really appreciate it. And we hope to be able to continue to grow. And all the new designers out there don't get stuck on what's happening today because you're really going to be the designers of tomorrow. So just think ahead and, you know, think of the future and don't be caught up in the right now. Because, you know, fashion is always moving and, you know, you you have the key in your own mind to push it where you want to go. So just just keep going. All right, you all, if you would like to check out Mimi's Designs, please visit MimiPlunge.com. That's M-I-M-I-P-L-A-N-G-E. Follow her on Instagram at the exact same name, Mimi Plunge. And again, Mimi, thank you so much for taking the time out to speak with me for the show. I know it's crazy trying to get things figured out and settled, but I'm glad we were finally able to connect. You are amazing. Thank you so much and thank you for your time. Black in Fashion is written and produced by me. Edited by Joelle North. The theme music is from PBT and Production Music Library. And background music for our profile episodes comes from Lakey Inspired. The title is Better Days. Please like, subscribe, review, and rate Black in Fashion five stars on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Spotify, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Lastly, follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at BLKNFSHN. Again, that's at BLKNFSHN, just like the logo. Thanks for listening.